I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Fake news and disinformation. They're plagues that are infecting our body politic every bit as much as COVID-19 is infecting our bodies. As the former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy, Rich Stengel was in charge of the U.S. government's efforts to combat disinformation. We'll talk to him about how foreign adversaries are manipulating our news feeds about the virus. And we'll also talk to a special surprise guest who knows more about fake news than anybody on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, we talked so much about disinformation during the 2016 election and its aftermath about how the Russians had manipulated social media, pumping out all these phony stories designed to inflame the electorate. But it's really remarkable that now in the COVID era, we're seeing a new wave of disinformation and fake news stories about the virus being concocted in a Chinese lab and miracle cures and all sorts of other phony stuff. And it's almost like sort of fake news 2.0. Yeah, this is something that's, uh, I think, going to be with us for a long time, if not forever. The information kind of uh, battlefield is, you know, just in full gear right now. And uh, as you point out, this pandemic is you know, creating fertile ground for misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories to take root. There's even a term that the WHO gave to it called infodemics, uh, pointing out that conspiracy theories and disinformation is much like a pathogen, and it spreads to people who are susceptible to that kind of disease. So it's a huge challenge, and you know we've got a couple of uh, really great experts uh, to talk about the subject. Yes, we do. Uh, one, in, you know, Stengel is a great expert, but we've got a better one for our listeners, and this really is pretty special. Somebody we've been trying to get on the podcast ever since we launched two and a half years ago. We've been trying to get this guy and now we've got him. So let's get to it. So we now have our special guest, the president of the United States, Donald John Trump, who in a weird twist is coming to us from the New Jersey apartment of comedian and Trump impersonator J.L. Covan. Mr. President, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, it's, uh, I wish I could say it was a pleasure to be here, but you know what? Sometimes you have to talk to the fake news as well. 
Well, we'll certainly be getting to that. But, Mr. President, I wanted to start out by pointing out that the um, CDC and other public health authorities have strongly advised all Americans to wear masks in the workplace or when they go outside. The White House even mandated that staff wear masks. And yet when you went to the Pennsylvania mask factory, you refused to wear one. In fact, no one has ever even seen you in a mask. Why won't you wear one? Well, first off, I can see that you're working from home, so things must not be going very well for you. And the fact is you're wearing a mask, which is like a show-off move because you're in your own house. So I see already I can see kind of the tone that we're going for, which is like, you know, trying to make me look bad. But you're in your own house. Not even Fauci would say for you to wear a mask. But I'll answer the question. I think it's important, okay? I know that people need to wear masks. I, I hear the doctors. But I'm the president, okay? I'm the leader of, like, a country. And people need to see that I'm strong and, like, not see that their leader is afraid or afraid to project sort of great strength and confidence because we're going to get through this. And by the way, I've been tested a lot more than you have, okay? Like, you've never been tested the way I've been tested. I've taken so many of these – excuse me, so many of these tests – and all of them are negative. So not only am I probably more healthy than you, I'm showing the country and the world that America's leader, excuse me, America's leader is strong. Mr. President, just a quick follow-up. By failing to do so, aren't you engaging in unmasking exactly what you have accused Obama administration officials of doing? Well, first of all, I'm not failing, okay? That's such a nasty word. I'm not failing to do anything, okay? You said failing. I'm choosing. It's called choice, okay? I'm very pro-choice when it comes to the mask. And this is nothing compared to what we're calling it Obamagate. This is nothing compared to the crimes that we're going to see. Obamagate is like, makes Nixon look like Lincoln, okay? It is a real disgusting sort of scandal, and you're going to find out very soon. Mr. President, we're, we're going to get back to Obamagate in a little bit, but I want to ask you, 86,000 Americans have died and 36 million Americans have lost their jobs in this pandemic. There's a coronavirus outbreak in the White House, and yet you declared on Monday that, quote, we have met the moment and we have prevailed. Aren't you declaring victory in the middle of a war that you're still losing, Mr. President? It's not, okay, I know it's not over, okay, it's not over. This is like, remember in World War II, when you had these like Japanese people on the islands who were like fighting like many years later, they didn't know that the war was over? That's where COVID is right now. It doesn't realize it's still fighting, but it doesn't realize that we've already won because we have great testing, far superior testing than like anybody. You've never seen testing like this. And the numbers are coming down. They're coming down so quickly. And we're reopening. We're already reopening large parts of the country. So it's, there's going to be a, some more deaths, and we hate that. We don't like that. It's not good for re-election or for the families, okay? It's not good for either. So believe me, there's a lot of suffering, but it's going down. We're doing a great job. And so I think we're on the way to victory, okay? It's not technically over, but they know it's over. The COVID is very aware that it's over. But you said that COVID doesn't realize that we've won. It's still ravaging the country because it doesn't realize that it has lost. Well, it's going to learn. It's a smart virus. As I've said before, it's one of the smartest, nastiest viruses we've ever seen. And uh, it's but it's going to learn very quickly. OK, that we are winning and it is going to be gone. I would I would think, honestly, we're trying to time it right so that by like July 4th, because wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be nice even for the fake news to have like 
COVID gone on July 3rd and then July 4th, we have tanks in the street and, you know, just great celebrations for the birthday of uh, this country, I believe, is what we are celebrating. You know, you previously said something similar about Easter and that didn't work out so well. But um, I want to on the testing issue when you uh, went. No, to Easter. That, by the way, Easter was very nice. OK, so I don't appreciate that. Easter was a great holiday. Okay. Um, in your visit to that mass factory, uh, you also said this about testing could be that testing is frankly overrated. Maybe it's overrated. What did you mean when you said that? And haven't you been tested a few times? Do you have any reason to believe that those tests you got were inaccurate and you actually are sick yourself? No, I don't think I'm sick at all, to be to be honest. And I think, you know, the testing, they test me. You know, I you are obviously where I have great Secret Service protection. That doesn't mean that I'm under danger every day. But you got to do like the extra protection because I'm the president. So the extra testing is not necessary, but it's because of the great office. OK, it's because of this great, strong office that I hold that we have to do the extra testing. But no, I don't think I'm sick at all. I think I'm in probably the best health I've ever been in because, you know, I'm not able to get as much McDonald's as I want. So I feel like I'm already getting like a little more fit. Well, Mr. President, there's a new poll out today that says that 71 percent of Americans trust Dr. Anthony Fauci on coronavirus, while only 40 percent of Americans trust you. What do you think explains that differential? Do you remember they had a group called the Jackson Five? Do you remember these people? I, I do, Mr. President. Right. They were they were a very popular group. They sang some good songs. And there were many members. OK, now, Michael Jackson was like the youngest. He sang lead. But you think he was making the business decisions? No, it was like the older brothers and the father who were doing it. Fauci is like Michael Jackson. He's the little one in front. He does possibly too much talking. And so people see him and they like they're a fan of him. I step back because I have more important things to do. So I let him get the spotlight. Now, if I did more talking and than him, people would say, oh, you're, you're talking too much. And when I let him talk, people say we trust him. It's called, you know, I'm letting him talk. OK, it's kind of generous to let people hear from him. So if they trust him, that's a good thing. But I think a lot of people look at me and say, oh, he's not talking. And then the fake news will complain if I do too much talking. Well, you've also been critical of Dr. Fauci. In fact, you retweeted the hashtag fire Fauci. You criticized him publicly the other day. Are, are you considering firing Dr. Fauci? No, I thought that was about fire festival. There's a documentary on Netflix that I was watching about this festival. And so I was very excited about that. And then they told me after that it was referencing not the festival, but the doctor. Of course, we're not firing Fauci. But no, I'm allowed to disagree. Wouldn't you say that? I, I'm allowed to have great disagreements. We don't have to always take, you know, sometimes it's called a second opinion. You know, you go to the doctor, they give you big news, you get a second opinion. So I'm just saying that, like, I'm allowed to disagree, you know? Mr. President, Katie Miller, an aide to Vice President Pence and the wife of Stephen Miller, uh, one of your closest advisors, tested positive for COVID-19. Are they quarantining away from you? And if so, how is it being away from two of your closest aides? Do, do you miss them? Well, you know, it's Stephen Miller is not he's a talented guy. He's a very talented young guy. He's not the kind of guy you miss, though, if you know what I mean. You know, it's like if you have a, a pit bull guarding your junkyard you respect it, but you don't necessarily like miss it and want to cuddle with it. Like when you, when you get back to work, uh, Stephen Miller is a tough guy. He's taking care of himself. And as far as his wife, Katie, nobody is concerned with her. She is as tough as they come because 
and I'm not going to, I'm not going to use foul language here, but she's married to Stephen Miller. And when you've had Stephen Miller, let's call it intimacy with Stephen Miller, you're not really afraid of any other viruses doing damage. So she's going to be very strong. I think she's going to come out of this stronger than ever, like a superhero. Did the uh, virus originate in the Wuhan lab? And if so, will you sue China? There's, sto- you know, we haven't concluded. There's stories. We're still doing great investigations. Okay. Pom- Mike Pompeo, our great secretary of state, is looking into this very strongly. And there's stories. There's stories that it started in a lab. So we're looking into that. We're not ready to come to a conclusion yet. But uh, no, we think that there's a strong possibility that China, which is has a lot of problems. I like Xi. I'm very strong and good friends with Xi. He's a tough guy and a great leader. But the country itself does a lot of negative things. So we're looking into it. And I would be prepared to take uh, strong legal action against China if, uh, if we find out with like certainty, with great certainty that they started it in a lab. Mr. President, I want to follow up on my previous question because you did say quite clearly that uh, you don't want to cuddle with Stephen Miller, not the kind of guy you would want to cuddle with. But I noticed that you um, did not answer the question about Vice President Pence, which implicitly suggests that you might want to cuddle with with him. So answer that question. Well, I can tell you, Mike Pence is not afraid to cuddle, okay? A guy who calls his wife mother is always down. We call him DTC, down to cuddle. But uh, what I can tell you is that Pence, you know, is a strong guy as well. He's very strong. He's tested negative the whole time. And uh, no, we're, uh, but no, there's no cuddling with Mike Pence. Is, uh, he's a very strong, prayerful sort of Christian. You know, there's no man on man cuddling with him, at least not that we, you know, can talk about. Mr. President, this morning you tweeted that Obamagate, all in caps, was the greatest political scandal in the history of the United States. Yet when you were asked the other day what exact crime you believe President Obama committed, you didn't answer, saying only that it was obvious. So for the record, can you please specify what crimes you believe your predecessor committed? And does the fact that you believe this have anything to do with the fact that you secretly also believe that he was born in Kenya? Well, I can say right now with sort of strong certainty that it is the worst, it is, listen to me closely, the worst political scandal the country's ever had. And as you know, I believe in something called rule of law. And if I start discussing what are very private investigations, okay, very strong and private investigations, it will disrupt the investigation. And I don't like to do that. I don't, it's called obstruction. And I never do that. I would never obstruct justice, okay, even for Obama, even though I think what he did was a disgrace right from the top, okay, makes Nixon look like Lincoln, okay, we're talking about that kind of scandal. I would not obstruct or interfere because I want the process to be very clean. I want it to be a clean, strong process. I'm still not hearing what's the crime. There's crimes that occurred and there are crimes that are ongoing, okay? And the deep state knows about this and there's a lot of bad things going on. So if we sort of, you ever heard the expression, the cat out of the bag about the cat that's in a bag and it's like a Dr. Seuss book. You let the cat out of the bag and all of a sudden, everything kind of gets ruined. So we're not going to do that, especially not to you, okay? You would not be the one I'd tell. 
Well, okay, related uh, to the Obamagate tweet, Mr. President, you, you also tweeted uh, that General Michael Flynn is, quote, being persecuted. But it was you who fired General Flynn for lying to the vice president before he served uh, even a month in office. If he's an innocent man, if he didn't do anything wrong, why did you fire him? If I have one regret about my entire presidency, which has obviously been one with very few regrets, it's firing Flynn. Okay, I was new in the office. I thought General Flynn was treated very unfairly, but we were trying to make our economy strong, to rebuild our military. They were out of ammunition. The military had no ammo. So we had to rebuild an economy, a military, and I wish I hadn't fired him, okay? I want to rehire him. But the fact remains, we had to get our country going in a strong direction, and it was a distraction, and we needed to sort of not get caught up in the Michael Flynn business. If I had all the time in the world, or if it was like a second or a third or fourth even, fourth term, I would have never fired him. But we were trying to get the country going, and I'm going to hire him back probably, to be honest, especially in a second term. You referenced earlier the uh, election later this year. You've spent the last three years touting your record on the economy. Yet we learned today retail sales uh, plunged 16% last month. Nearly 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment since March. Hasn't the virus taken away your main argument for re-election? No, I don't think at all. And nobody's talking about the great upsurge, okay, the great enthusiasm for webcam girls, okay? Their numbers have never been stronger, okay? So we're doing great in that sector. That's like a very hot sector right now, okay? But the economy, we were hit by a disaster that nobody saw coming, except maybe China, maybe China. And that's what it took. Our economy and our country were going so strongly. It took basically the greatest disaster we've ever found in human history to derail what was the great Trump presidency. So. We are going to get our country back. The economy is going to come back so strong. As soon as I'm reelected, you'll see the economy go like a like a rocket ship. Okay, so no, I'm not. uh, I think our economy is still going to be a great talking point, because imagine, okay, if we had not made the economy the greatest in history, we don't not me, but most of us would be like homeless. So I still think people should be thanking me that it would be 10 times worse if I had not been president. Well, speaking of the election, Mr. President, will you be holding big political rallies uh, like you did in 2016 and throughout most of your presidency? And if so, what kind of mitigation measures will you be putting in place so that your supporters don't get sick? Social distancing, mask wearing, what are you going to do to protect them? Well, there's going to be available on Trump.com for only $50, a Trump full protection white MAGA hood, okay? This hood will give full coverage, okay? It has two eye holes, a mouth hole. It's, it's like pointy, so there's like extra air to like facilitate breathing. And it's long, so it covers like way past the neck. And these are like, so that's the first step. We're going to have great protection for people in terms of masks, like much more advanced masks than these like N95s that only cover like part of the face. We're going to do social distancing, okay? Which means... We're going to keep like a seat in between a few of our people, okay? 
and we're going to have a strong convention. We're having, by the way, the greatest convention ever. It's going to be a celebration of America coming back. So while Biden, Sleepy Joe, has like some sort of Zoom chat as his convention, we're going to have tens of thousands of people safe, protected by their MAGA hoods, and it's going to be great. So people will be safe, but it'll also be a very great show of strength of how healthy we are as a country. If you actually do lose the election to Joe Biden, will you accept the results and voluntarily move out of the White House next January? You're asking me to accept results that I don't know. Like, in other words, I don't know how those results came about. If we find out that there was interference from another country, if we find out that like there was great voter fraud, which the Democrats are already planning, then it would make no sense for me to give up the office. It would be like it would be wrong to the country to get to let Sleepy Joe take over if he was a fake president. That's we have to see. We'll see what happens because I can't commit because the Democrats are so crooked. They're such a crooked party and they're so hateful at this point. They're so hateful that I don't know what steps they're going to take. Well, Mr. President, you've been very generous with your time. So we're going to start wrapping up. Got a few more questions here. I'd like to know, what would you say to the families of the more than 85,000 people who have died from COVID-19? And how many of them have you actually communicated with? There was, well, I say, first off, uh, you know, your country is very sorry for you. And it's, it's a terrible thing that's happened. It's a terrible thing. Our economy got destroyed by this thing. And lives were also lost. Like, we, we had trillions of dollars of wealth destroyed. And some people lost their lives as well, which is like, they call that in, insult to injury, okay? So, under, but we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. And by this time next year, when you're obviously having a very sad anniversary saying, you know, my so-and-so passed away, you're going to look at that 401k, and you're not going to be sad anymore because that 401k is going to be so strong. Some people might even forget their relatives that passed. They might say, oh, I forgot that this was like the anniversary of a sad day because I got a Trump 401k boost like we've never seen before. So I think that's, that, that is a very strong kind of consolation prize in the very least. But I think I've met, I think I met a few family members of people who've lost people. And, uh, you know, they were upset and they were not happy and that was understandable. And it's OK. It's I didn't mind that they weren't like thanking me for what I'm doing because they were, you know, they were sad. They were crying. And it's hard to thank somebody when you're in tears because I don't think they were like happy tears for meeting the president, though they might have been. They might have actually been. Now that I think of it, I think the people were actually so happy to see me. That's what was making them cry. So I think I'm doing a great job. I think the people know that, that I, I'm doing everything I can for them, and uh, we're going to come back strong. Uh, Mr. President, uh, when you were asked by our colleague uh, Hunter Walker about a month or so ago to rate your performance in handling the pandemic, you gave yourself a 10. Um, since you're there in New Jersey visiting his apartment, how would you rate J.L. Coven's impersonation of you? And do you have any advice for him? My advice for him would be to stop like yesterday, okay? If he could do that, if he had a time machine, I'd tell him to stop. I think he's, 
kind of a failed comedian, okay? And I think we should be investigating him, to be honest, about the whole COVID, because his name, Covan, sounds kind of like COVID. And this guy had no career. This guy had no career. He was trying to imitate me before this happened. And then all of a sudden, do you see what happens? The COVID ruins the economy, takes many lives, and this guy is having the best month of his career. So I think we need to investigate. I think advice for him would be to get a lawyer, okay? A strong lawyer, not like a Michael Cohen. Get a strong lawyer because we might have to investigate him because he seems to be benefiting an awful lot for a guy nobody had ever heard of before this invisible enemy trademark pending occurred. I've got one final question uh, for the president. Uh, is there any aspect of the response to this p pandemic that you think you could have handled better? Do you have any regrets, President Trump? Regrets? No, no regrets. Are there, is there anything that I think we could have handled better? I don't think anybody walking this earth could have done a better job. And I mean that, I mean that. I know that maybe sounds arrogant, but it's the truth. I don't think anybody could have done any better than what we've done. It's like quite, it's really impressive what we've done. So I think, no, not only do I have no regrets, I'm proud of, I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at how well we've done handling this, to be honest. Well, Ms. President, we really appreciate you uh, taking time to speak to the Skullduggery podcast. Are there any podcasts that you either do on your own or you would want to recommend to our listeners? There is one podcast that I absolutely would recommend because it's my own podcast. It's called Making Podcasts Great Again because we like branded it with the slogan. It is once a week. I talk directly to the people. I have like a tech stuff guy who kind of moderates, but I talk directly to our great people. It's available anywhere you get podcasts. Okay. Like any store, whatever store you go in to purchase your podcasts, you get the podcast right there. So it's called making podcasts great again. And not to do too many plugs, but I think the people want to hear from me. I have an album. Okay. It's a great album. It's called Fireside Craps the Deuce. It's like an oral history of my presidency in my own words. It's a, re it's a beautiful thing. So people should get it, uh, listen to it, and uh, I'll sign the, you know, the, you download it, and then I'll sign the download. I think that's how it works. Like if you come to a show, I'll sign, or at a rally, I'll sign the download if that's how it works. Ms. President, thanks for joining us, and we do hope to have you back. Well, we'll see. We'll see how I get treated because a lot of the time you do interviews and then, you know, you find out somebody is like a good journalist or if they like nasty fake news and they put things that you didn't say. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I think I can trust you guys. But, you know, I've been I've been burned before with people quoting my words and actions directly and it doesn't work out well. No, it doesn't. Thank you, Mr. President. You're welcome. <laughs> We are now joined by Richard Stengel, Kleibman and uh, my uh, former competitor at uh, Time Magazine, was also the uh, Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy during the Obama administration and the author of Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation and What We Can Do About It. Richard, welcome back to Skullduggery. 
Thank you. Great to be with you guys. So when we last had you on, we were talking about disinformation in the context of Russian propaganda, its efforts during the 2016 election and all related matters. Of course, now the battle over disinformation has shifted to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, you wrote a pretty interesting piece about this uh, for the Los Angeles Times recently, in which you used a phrase I hadn't seen before, infodemic. Do I have that right? Tell tell us what that is. Well, I wish I coined that phrase because uh, then I would get credit for it. But it's actually coined by the World Health Organization. And it's a the infodemic is a, it's a pandemic of disinformation and misinformation about COVID-19 and, and coronaviruses. And I have to say, you know, despite the, you know, the incredible uh, sort of intimidation of the World Health Organization by Donald Trump and the Trump administration, they've done a pretty good job in helping countries around the world fight COVID-19. And they've been on the front lines of this battle against disinformation about about COVID-19. And the and the, the disinformation ranges from everything from, you know, quack and false cures uh, to uh, falsity about how you can get it to uh, crazy ideas about you can get rid of it. And and something that's new that we talked a little bit about when we, when we talked about the book months ago is is the role of, of China. And China has sort of gotten off the sidelines of disinformation and been a real active player in promoting the, the line that the, the virus did not originate in Wuhan, that it was perhaps a uh, creation of American intelligence agencies or American biolabs. And uh, the Chinese have been on the front lines of disseminating a lot of disinformation about about COVID-19 and, you know, the Russians have too. And, and the, the big social media platforms are taking down, you know, handles and sites every day. I mean, uh, you know, I look at what, what Facebook takes down every day. They take, you know, the uh, uh, coordinated disinformation campaigns down. So it's, it is, it's indeed an infodemic. But it's an in, kind of an information war, Rick, on kind of uh, many different fronts, right? Because, you were just talking about, you know, kind of the origins of the virus, who's to blame for it. But, you know, in this country, you know, public health officials are really kind of freaking out about all of the disinformation or misinformation that's out there about, you know, kind of quack cures and scams that are going on. And then, of course, you know, we have a president who has who has uh, more than just dabbled in some of those, you know, kinds of theories about, you know, how how you might be able to cure yourself. So this is a global challenge. Uh, It is a kind of a multi front war. You know, I guess I'm interested in talking to you about, well, two things. One is there is something unique about a pandemic like this that makes it fertile for misinformation and and conspiracy theories to take root. So that's question 1 for you. Talk about that and then and then I want to talk about you know the kind of prescriptive element uh, here. Is this too big for us to handle? So those are two big questions, but take the first one about the kind of fertile ground for all of this today. Yes. Yeah, so I mean disease, illness, pandemics have been a ripe territory for misinformation and disinformation throughout history. You know, from this canard that 
you know, Jews caused the Black Plague by poisoning the wells of Christian communities to all kinds of conspiracy theories about the, the Spanish flu in 1917, uh, 19, 18. And part of it is because, you know, one of the people who study disinformation, fear and uncertainty is a very, very uh, ripe breeding ground for disinformation. And there's, you know, there's very few situations in human life that have more fear and uncertainty around them than a pandemic. So it breeds a lot of disinformation. And one of the things I said in the LA Times article is that, is that disinformation itself is a kind of pathogen that infects people and it infects them when their defenses are down and their defenses are down, you know, when they're, when they're fearful. So, so we're seeing this in action every day. And of course, social media has increased exponentially the amount of disinformation that there is and the ease with which um, people can get it. I mean, I actually don't think it's too big, Dan, you know, in the sense that social media is a tool that works both ways. I mean, it can be used to combat disinformation as well. And, you know, one of the things I said in the piece is that, you know, we have to practice social distancing from disinformation and misinformation, too. We shouldn't traffic in it. We shouldn't forward it. Let me follow up on that, uh, because this is something that, you know, as, as an editor you know, trying to cover the news, I deal with on, on a daily basis. And you, you, uh, you talk in your um, piece about, I think I saw, you, you, yeah, you, you say that sometimes um, talking about mi the mi kind of mitigation that you were talking about, maintain a social distance from disinformation, practice good information hygiene. But you also say don't, don't traffic in conspiracy theories, of course, and don't even bother rebutting them as even the refutation creates an echo. And um, I think you talked about this idea of the lie, the liar's dividend. And so uh, this comes up in my newsroom all the time. Trump tweets some conspiracy theory, and the impulse is, we got to cover it. It's an outrage, A, and B, we have to debunk it. But in doing that, we're also spreading it. So what is the media's role here in how to deal with this dynamic, this, this issue? No, it's a really good question, and, and it's one that I faced when I was an editor, too. I don't think we were so cognizant of it pre-Donald Trump, but one of the things that, that we've seen, and it's, and it's not that I say don't rebut disinformation. What I say is don't repeat the disinformation in order to rebut it. So there's this thing that we all face is when Trump says something that's untrue or says a lie on Twitter, do you attach the rebuttal to, to his tweet or do you not use his tweet at all. And, you know, I confess that there are plenty of times that I've retweeted a Trump tweet in order to rebut it. But what social scientists say, and there was a, is a dissertation that I quote in, in my book, Information Wars, a woman PhD who created this term called belief echoes, which is this idea that when you repeat a falsehood, even to debunk it, it gets embedded in your brain so that people actually have a greater recollection of it even after the rebuttal than they did before. So you have to be very, very careful with it. And, and as you say, I mentioned this great phrase, the liar's dividend, which is, you know, the liar's dividend is basically that it doesn't necessarily make people believe the lie, but it makes people question the truth. And that's something that the Russians in particular, as you guys know, have practiced for a very long time. It's not like they want people to believe their lie. They want people to question the the truth of other people and the reality and even the idea that they're empirical facts. And, and to get, get back where you started, Danny, the, you know, the, uh, in my book, I call Trump the disinformationist in chief. And 
you know, one of the most extraordinary things about those corona news conferences, which are sort of campaign rallies, is this his is his repeating these in, these insane conspiracy theories about the virus, including this idea that you could inject yourself with disinfectant and bleach and and maybe cure the virus or, or prevent it. I mean, you know, as you know, and you got, we got, we've all covered the White House for many years. I mean, under almost every other administration, I mean, the, the White House police is what the president says to such an extent that you wouldn't even have the president say something that has a 1% chance of being wrong or a 1% chance of, of being a, a piece of misinformation or disinformation. And, and Trump just, you know, blithely creates these things out of nothing and and they take on a life of their own. We should talk about Trump and his briefings uh, because I think they're key to this. But just to go back to the discussion we're having about how do you deal with this? Do you rebut disinformation and conspiracy theories at the risk of possibly perpetuating them? The classic example I could think of is go back to 2011 when the birther conspiracy theory was getting traction largely because Donald Trump was hawking it on every TV show. And in that case, the Obama White House actually made the decision, okay, let's go out to Hawaii and get that long form birth certificate and put this to rest, which they did. And it actually did kind of puncture the birther balloon um, that was getting a lot of oxygen at that time. So I guess that's a case where you could say actually responding, putting out truthful information worked. Well, I don't disagree with that. On the other hand, the birther conspiracy is still out there. I mean, if you look at polls, that you know, a very high percentage of Republican voters still believe that President Obama was born in Kenya. Yeah, even though that that birth certificate was produced, and then you'll have people on the right who are in the disinformation business themselves will say that the that the birth certificate itself was false. But I generally agree with your premise that there are times that you can rebut it. Now, I would have said to the Obama White House, "You don't. I wouldn't repeat this idea that that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. Let's let's not even give it any oxygen." Why else would you release the birth certificate? Well, then yeah. let's find the birth certificate and then just yeah. and just release that. But I mean, to kind of rebut it without actually tangible information doesn't seem right. like a good idea. But I mean, but you look at I mean, talk about uh, I don't think I talked about it in the L.A. Times piece, but I've been thinking about it in other contexts. Things like, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, this pamphlet, which was published in Russia in 1916 or 1917 that purported to show a, uh, a Jewish conspiracy among Jewish leaders to take over the world. Well, I mean, it's been rebutted a thousand times and, things, and many things have been published about it. It's still used to teach elementary school students in the Middle East and in Japan and other places around Asia. So yes, you know, rebutting a falsehood with data and information is a good thing, and it can be partially successful, but it never eradicates it. I mean, it's a little like a virus itself, right? I mean, we're going to perhaps get herd immunity to COVID-19, but it won't go away completely, and it can flare up again. And I think that's the same thing with conspiracy theories and disinformation. Well, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion makes me wonder and, and ask you the question, since you've kind of looked at 
at the sort of looked at this in the broader sweep of history is, is this a kind of a cyclical phenomenon? Um, I mean, clearly, a lot of these conspiracy theories is the one you just mentioned. They stick around for a, a long time. But more broadly speaking, is this something that there are periods when these kinds of conspiracy theories and disinformation kind of, uh, you know, take root more and it sort of comes and goes, ebbs and flows, or are we have we now passed into a into a phase of history where this is just going to be with us, you know, forever? I mean, is is this just something we're just going to have to deal with for the rest of our lives and beyond? Well, the short answer is yes, but the longer question, I'll, I, when I was out doing the, you know, uh, on book tour when my book came out, I was out in Seattle and somebody in in the audience raised their hand and they said, "Mr. Stengel, let me ask you a question." Do you think that the proportion of disinformation to information which is out there now in 2020 is different than any time in history? Do you think there's more disinformation relative to information than any time than any other time in history? So I thought, I mean, how often do you get a question where you go, whoa, I, I don't know. I really <laughs> thought about that. And because it's a great question, because there's obviously exponentially more information than any time in history. You know, the Eric Schmidt idea that you know, every three days now, there's more information published than all the information published up until, you know, 1994 or whatever it is. And so there's an incredible amount of, of true information than there ever was before. And I don't know if there's more disinformation as a percentage of true information. I'd love to hear you guys what you think about it, but what but the accessibility of it so that you, it feels like it's larger because you can just type in a conspiracy theory into Google and see a thousand articles about it. Once upon a time, we're all relatively the same era. You know, you'd have to go to a library or look up clips and, you know, look at those folders at Newsweek to see, you know, what, you know, mistake Rick Stengel make it, made in Time magazine. But now, you know, it's very easy to find. So I don't know if that means that, you know, like the Daniel Kahneman thesis, that ease of access makes people think the percentage of its availability is higher. I don't know if it is or not. It's, I, what do you guys think? Well, I, the question the question that I'm wondering is whether there is more of a kind of a psychological need today for conspiracy theories or disinformation. Because, you know, you talked before about this being about when, when people are f- feeling fearful they're more susceptible to conspiracy theories and they want to have a sense of control and agency. But I think there's also an element of wanting to have these kind of secrets, you know, about the government, about corporations, about, you know, Bill Gates, um, this sense that, you know, I, I know something that everybody else doesn't know. Now, maybe that's something that's always been around, but I think that's a, an element of, of this, isn't it, Rick? I do think so. And there's studies that show that one reason people gravitate towards disinformation is that it makes them feel like an insider, that they're more knowing than other people. It's a, it gives them a sense of superiority. I mean, but I don't know if there's more of a need for that now than there ever has been in history. Yeah, I, I wondered if that if there's any connection at all between this kind of era of like, the, you know, kind of populist politics that we have right now, the elites versus you know people who feel powerless. Uh, and so there is more of a need to have that currency vis-a-vis the, you know, the people who they think are elites, who are in control, who, are in, you know, who have all of the power. So it doesn't surprise me then that populist politicians, you know, whether it's Maduro in Venezuela or Trump here or others around the world who have been 
purveyors of conspiracy theories. I think there's some kind of a connection there in the, uh, in our politics today. I agree with you. And there are studies that show that there's a correlation between people's feeling of powerlessness and their feeling of not being able to influence their own destiny and change the trajectory of their own lives and their willingness to believe in conspiracy theories or that other people are controlling their lives. And by the way, you know, not every conspiracy theory is false. I mean, there is a lot of inequity uh, that comes from the concentration of power. And, and um, that's something that we should be thinking about and trying to correct. But yes, I mean, the, what's part and parcel of this populism is, a, is often a belief that among the, the people without power, that there's a conspiracy against them and that the strong man is going to correct that, is going to drain the swamp. So we're seeing that all over the world. You know, certainly the uh, 2016 election was one in which, you know, conspiracy theories and disinformation flourished like never before. A lot of it stoked by the Russians. And this was, uh, you know, active measures, which, of course, the Soviets had practiced for years on steroids in a way and far more successful than active measures had been in the past. I think in large part because of the proliferation of social media and the ability to sort of get these false stories into the media bloodstream uh, through social media. But it just seems to me that, and maybe this hooks up to the point you were making in your um, in your piece in the LA Times, that that has the success the Russians had in 2016 has become a playbook for others. And what we're seeing now by the Chinese and other nation states, the Iranians, is really sort of sort of building on the success that the Russians had in the 2016 election. Yes, exactly, Mike. I mean, it's the, the Russians basically created the playbook. In fact, you know, in my book, I have, uh, you know, the instruction manual that, that you, you know, the young people who work at the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg would get. And, you know, I'm sure that in Iran and India and China and other places, they're, they're looking at those things. I mean, uh, I was looking just before we started talking about, you know, the, I'm affiliated uh, with the uh, Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab. And every day they publish a new list of disinformation related to COVID-19 and, and other examples of disinformation. And so, you know, there, there was a gigantic kind of epidemic of disinformation on Facebook that Facebook took down that came from Myanmar recently about, uh, you know, indicting the Rohingya and, and trying to... Uh, uh, go against the narrative that that they're persecuting the Rohingya. Were, were they suggesting the Rohingya had uh, had created COVID? No, they, it actually wasn't COVID related, but it was about okay. you know the the same kind of misinformation about the Rohingya that they've been doing for a long time. And and the reason we're seeing a rise of it is it's inexpensive. I mean, it's you know it's a lot easier to have you know twenty five people with laptops in a room than buy an F-35. I mean, it's it's asymmetric warfare that has a pretty good return on the investment. So I think we're just going to see countries all around the world ramping up their, you know, their versions of the Internet Research Agency. So I guess the question is, you you ran the part of the State Department that was charged with rebutting a lot of this. But, you know, in effect, it puts the U.S. government into the information wars, but that's also can be easily spun as putting the U.S. government into propaganda wars. And 
how do you draw the line between not wanting to be a propaganda arm of the U.S. government and still be a reliable narrator that can rebut disinformation from other governments? It's a great question. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is sort of coming to the realization when I was at the State Department that not only are we not very good at playing that game and that we often contribute to the rise of disinformation by rebutting it, that we shouldn't really be in that business at all. I mean, I came to the conclusion that we shouldn't be countering disinformation in the traditional way that we used to do that with the U.S. Information Agency did that because part of it was creating belief echoes. Uh, Part of it, we weren't very good at it. And I came to the conclusion that boring old government should be kind of like boring old government and say, you know, this is, here are the facts about our policy. Uh, Here are the facts about what we're doing with financial aid. And that's the U.S. government's view or the U.S. government's response. And, And there are a lot of people that will just automatically question that because it comes from the U.S. government. But there will be people who say, okay, well, at least... That's they're saying what they should do. The propaganda is a whole other category. And yeah, I I actually want to ask you about propaganda because that's uh, I mean, that's legitimate, right? That's fair game. I mean, we've been doing it with VOA, with Radio Liberty, uh, uh, Radio Free Europe and other outfits for a long time. But but this uh, this pandemic has kind of demonstrated that the Chinese are right now seem to be better at it than, than we are. I mean, you know, the, we, we see all these stories about China delivering, you know, thousands of pounds of metal equipment, uh, medical equipment to uh, Italy, to Spain, uh, parts of Africa. Uh, I, I, what do they call it? The health, uh, the health silk road. And it's a propaganda bonanza for them. And we are way behind, aren't we? So I, I'm going to take that up, but I just want to rebut one thing that you said, which is that you know, Voice of America and, uh, you know, the and international U.S. international broadcasting, I, I would not call propaganda. I mean, they are news organizations. True, true. But we get our but, but we do get our message out through organs of, of the U.S. government. Yes. But I, I again, I, I, w- I wouldn't call them propaganda and I, and I don't think they are. And I was on the board of that. That's a whole other discussion. But what but to your bigger point, which which is this, is that the Chinese have discovered the uh, importance and value of soft power. That's the same thing that the Russians discovered, that Putin discovered after the Berlin Wall came down when he was a KGB officer in Dresden. And they think, well, the whole Berlin Wall came down without a single shot being fired. That wasn't hard power. That was soft power. And the next thing he did was when he became when he got into office was to take over the television networks. One of the things that we saw with Chinese propaganda when I was at the State Department was most of it was directed internally. Very little of it was directed externally. It was for their own domestic audience. But one of the things that we've seen since the outbreak of the virus is that China has become much bigger player in the soft power sweepstakes and is broadcasting its propaganda around the world in a very aggressive way. And they've come to understand that soft power is a really important complement to hard power. And the fact is they have way bigger checkbooks than anybody else. And, you know, I think I tell the story in the book. I had a, an African foreign minister say to me, you know, with a little bit of a, a smile, he said, you come and talk to me about transparency and the Chinese come and build me a superhighway. Who am I going to listen to? Well, that is part of their 
soft power is that they have a lot of hard power and that the Silk Road initiative is a multi, multi-billion dollar initiative. I mean, they're building roads and bridges and factories all around the world in Africa and Asia. And we're just not able to do that like we once did. And we're not able to do it at the scale that they're doing it now. And, and believe me, I mean, in these countries where they're spending billions of dollars, that also gets their narrative out there. And so that, I, I think it remains to be seen how successful they will be at it, but they, they're putting a lot of chips on it. Just to uh, wrap up this discussion, I want to take you back to President Trump and his White House briefings. And I guess the sort of larger question here is how can the U.S. government effectively rebut disinformation and misinformation when the president of the United States is spouting it regularly from the White House? Well, I don't know. That's the, you know, the $10 million question. I think, you know, I mean, obviously, we've all spent a lot of time listening, not only to Donald Trump, but, you know, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. And, and I think, you know, you know, Dr. Fauci in particular, it, you know, tries to do that. You know, he obviously doesn't repeat things that are mistaken in order to rebut them. He tries to be a vehicle for the truth and for data. And I think that's kind of the only way to do it. I mean, the problem, you know, the, the problem of disinformation is when the person at the top of the pyramid is the most promiscuous user of it, it poisons everything else. And so that's the problem with the Trump administration is that, you know, he's he causes people to disbelieve the administration, even when they're touting actual facts. And and that's a big problem. And, you know, it's it's ironic because this is a moment when there are a lot of people up there touting actual facts, and we've become a nation kind of obsessed with data and science. And for a lot of people, you know, Dr. Fauci is a kind of rock star. But it doesn't seem as, as if we're going to take advan- advantage of, uh, of this opportunity. No. And, and, you know, again, it's another missed opportunity. And of course, in part of the Trump disinformation that the Obama administration left the cupboards bare, you know, contrary to that, they actually left a, a, a briefing and a playbook on how to combat a, a viral pandemic like this. And one of the things in the in the briefing book, which I've looked at and which anybody can look at, by the way, is to not have the president be the principal spokesperson, but to have scientists in government be the principal daily spokespeople about what's going on in the fight against pandemic. And, you know, obviously not only did the Trump administration not look at the playbook, but they're they're doing the exact opposite. Well, Donald Trump doesn't think of the words principal spokesman and think of anybody other than himself. So, but Rick, thank you so much for coming on. You are a, uh, essential in these uh, days when information is so uh, seriously challenged, and uh, we're, we want to have you on again. Um, and before you go, want to mention that your book is going to be out in paperback next next month, correct? Yes, that is true information. And you guys, okay. let me throw the, okay. throw the compliment back at you guys because you're you're on the front lines of this battle against disinformation yourselves. And and I just want to tip my hat to what you're doing. And you guys have been truth tellers for a long time, and it's an important time to do that. So thank you. Well, the, the, thank you. And, and the book is called, once more, Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Dis- Disinformation and What We Can Do About It. Rick Stengel, thanks much. Thank you, guys. 
Thanks to comedian J.L. Covan and former Undersecretary of State for Diplomacy and Public Affairs and author Richard Stengel for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.